Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Robert Sampson, who is Henry Ford II Professor of the Social Sciences at Harvard University and Director of the Social Sciences Program at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. He's also current president of the American Society of Criminology and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He and his colleague, Dr. John Lobb, received the Stockholm Prize in Criminology in 2011. Dr. Sampson joins us today to talk about his recently published book, Great American City, Chicago and the Enduring Neighborhood Effect, published by the University of Chicago Press. podcast. We're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Robert Sampson, who is a sociologist and has most recently published a book called Great American City, Chicago and the Enduring Neighborhood Effect. Dr. Sampson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, I've been working my way through your book, and it's quite something. Um, It's got... uh, many chapters and, and so much uh, good stuff in there about uh, both the city of Chicago, but also your your work um, over many years on the Chicago project and neighborhood effects. So I thought maybe we could just start out by talking a little bit about how you set up the book in the beginning. Um, in the early chapters, you bring up a couple of different ideas or themes about community that I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. One of them is this idea of globalization, that the world is now flat and kind of place really doesn't matter. Technology kind of means you can be anywhere at any time and and that kind of thing. And then the, the second one is the idea that community has been lost. People are probably familiar with Putnam's work and other um, places where this idea that community has kind of fallen apart and that people aren't as connected as they used to be. And I I wondered, you know, why did you choose those ideas as sort of a a launching place for your book? Sure. Well, I think that, um, first of all, the narrative or the common understandings in both sort of the public intellectual world um, and discourse in the larger society Mm -hmm. and even in scholarly work is heavily influenced by the notion of globalization and what's been called placelessness. Mm-hmm. The reason you said the idea that um, it's sort of one world, a flat world, uh, technology, we can be anywhere. Right. And I think that's really important, and certainly um, it's true uh, to some fundament- mm-hmm. in fundamental way, but it tends to disguise the fact of, of concentration of many different kinds of phenomenon in the contemporary world. Mm-hmm. Start out um, by linking the disjuncture between that notion of flatness with the idea and demonstration with evidence that in fact the world is very uneven, it, it's spiky. Mm-hmm. I show it um, in an introductory way with uh, a map, um, and the very first map um, shows the concentration of homicide. Mm-hmm. Homicide is very concentrated in mm-hmm. particular places. It's anything but uneven. The other large uh, debate that has gone on, not just recently, but actually um, almost in the entire history of social science, mm-hmm. that's of the decline of community. It seems that every generation or so there are pronouncements about decline. And in a way, it's almost ironic that the more modern globalization thesis and the old community decline thesis share something in common, and that is 
the idea that community, especially as manifested in place or in neighborhoods, um, that that's rendered irrelevant, that Mm. it's more or less impotent in the modern world. I argue against that, and I use that framing to then move into um, showing that, in fact, um, not only is the world um, characterized by this concentration, but that it also goes across diverse phenomena. That is to say, it's not just any one thing like homicide, but rather um, many things. In fact, some things that we typically don't even think about with regard to association um, with place. And I, I show, for example, the relationship between homicide and child health. In the rest of the book, I examine things as different as leadership networks, disorder, teenage pregnancy, altruism, home floor closures, and, and many other things. Yeah. So that leads then to the idea that not only is there concentration, but that it goes across diverse or otherwise different kinds of phenomena. And then thirdly, which I note in the, in the opening chapter, is that there's a real persistence um, over time in these concentration effects, surprisingly so, because if in fact there is this um, large-scale globalization, and mm-hmm. there certainly is, but also if you, if you think about all the changes that have gone in, on in society in the last um, 20, 30 years, not only have we had the recent recession, but we can talk about gentrification, we can mm-hmm. talk about population change, we can talk about going back to the 60s, increases in crime, out-migration from the cities, more recently a decline in crime. All these macro-social changes Hmm. are in a sense um, overlaid on on a neighborhood structure. And I think that's somewhat counterintuitive because we tend to think that, well, if there's this massive social change, then that must must somehow upend um, Hmm. these neighborhood effects. And I I show that that's just not true. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit then about how you uh, define neighborhoods. Because, you know, obviously I know in the scholarly literature there's a lot of debate about what counts as a neighborhood or not, and there's things like spillover effects and stuff like that. So, I mean, how do you, um, in the book, then discuss neighborhoods and, and what they are? Sure. Well, I start, first of all, with a conceptual definition, which I think is most important. And that's the idea that neighborhood is, is a geographic section of a larger community that usually contains residents or institutions and has socially distinctive characteristics. So at the simplest level, a neighborhood really comprises two things. It's a physical structure, geographic section, and mm-hmm. thanks to the idea, sort of a common sense notion of neighborhood, when we say we're in the neighborhood, well, we mean um, proximity, right? Sort of right. spatial um, proximity. Right. And secondly, social distinctiveness, and that goes to the notion that there's clustering of Uh social phenomena. And again, it's not just race or class or housing type, but many things in society. And we can see that um, there's great inequality across neighborhoods in Mm -hmm. social characteristics. So that, in a sense, provides a way to think about um, the importance of place or not. But differently, if it didn't matter, then there would be no variability by these geographic um, sections of of the city and social character. I try not to get too hung up with what um, we define as a neighborhood in the sense that I don't think there's any one correct Mm -hmm. definition or I try not to argue for a proper statistical definition. The reason is that I think the concept of place and the power of place and the power of neighborhood 
is that it has um, a, a kind of quality that allow, allows it to be um, examined at, at multiple different levels. In other words, you can have a place or a neighborhood that's relatively small, some phenomena that's really important at a very micro level, for example, blocks or block groups or a housing project. Other times it's a larger um, community, and in fact, in Chicago, I examine communities that are that are quite large and mm-hmm. roughly on the order of you know, 30,000 people, but, but communities that have distinctive names and identities that are often imposed from the outside, mm-hmm. such as um, Hyde Park or if people have ever been to Chicago, the Loop mm-hmm. or the Near North Side. These names, these identities that, that are shaped and, and have meaning over time are quite relevant, I think, to our understanding of neighborhood effects. So mm-hmm. I, I view it as something that um, in the social science literature we, we can think of as, as a scalable definition. There's a theoretical concept that, again, is rooted in the idea of a physical place um, with socially distinctive characteristics that varies in size. And by the way, that also allows me to escape sort of the trap, if you will, <laughs> of the idea that neighborhood, um, in some people's minds, is characterized by sort of a tight-knit, uh-huh. Um, dense um, interactions among neighbors. That's right. what's referred to as kind of the urban village, the notion of, well, mm-hmm. everyone knows one another, mm-hmm. people are interacting, people have dinner with their neighbors and so forth. Actually, um, in some neighborhoods that's true, but uh, the key fact is that that's a highly variable mm-hmm. um, characteristic. In other words, social interactions and identity um, or the extent to which you know your neighbors varies across mm-hmm. neighborhoods. So mm-hmm. by separating the neighborhoodness is one way to think about it from the actual um, neighborhood definition, it allows one to look at these variabilities and then see how they're correlated and, and relate to um, various aspects of society. So I think that by defining neighborhood as this sort of tight-knit um, social unit that we've we've sort of fallen into a trap and therefore by assumption, neighborhoods have declined because it is seemingly the case that many of these kinds of social ties have declined over time. But by rejecting that equation, then then we get out of that trap. So this is perhaps one way to think about it is it's not your grandfather's neighborhood. (laughs) Yeah, the neighborhood I live in is very different from my grandfather's neighborhood, that's for sure. Um, But so then what what is a neighborhood effect for people that may not be as familiar with that literature and, and what you're kind of studying here in the book. How, how do we define what a neighborhood effect is, and what are some examples? Sure. Well, in the simplest terms, it means that neighborhood and place um, shape our lives. Mm-hmm. That is to say, the characteristics of the neighborhood have an influence on individual behavior, but also neighborhood-level variations in things like crime, mm-hmm. engagement, protest, um, health of the neighborhood. The debate in the social science literature has revolved a lot around the question of, well, is it really the effect of the place or the neighborhood, or is it about the characteristics of the individual that lives in that neighborhood? Mm -hmm. So that's a fairly straightforward way to think about the sort of the nub of of the problem. And that is one way to think about it, but it's I argue that the research has been quite limited because it often then goes on to say, well, that means we should control or um, 
in essence, statistically adjust for all those characteristics. In some cases, right, but another way to look at it is that individual characteristics, our perceptions, family characteristics um, that are often seen as competing explanations, things like family structure, things like family income, mm-hmm. towards education, if those are also linked to neighborhoods or are part of the neighborhood effect, then in a way we need to really reconceptualize the whole enterprise, which is what I try to do. Mm-hmm. You don't want to control those things. You want to look at how even individual perceptions, let's say, or let's take the choice of where to live in a neighborhood. That is individual selection. Right. I show that residential mobility, where to live, and we follow people over long periods of time, no matter where they moved, that that in itself is influenced by the characteristics of the neighborhood. So in a sense, individual selection or the things that are often thought to be counter explanations to neighborhood effects are themselves built into the the very phenomenon. So the book, in a way, tries to move across uh, multiple levels. And I don't mean that, or at least one shouldn't think of that in in just a a, a rigid sort of statistical sense. What What I'm trying to do is to say that Individuals are important, and Mm -hmm. I study individual choice, individual perceptions. I think neighborhoods are important, but then I also even go beyond the neighborhood that is the boundaries of the units that I study to argue that there's connections across neighborhoods in the city, spatial effects, and really Mm -hmm. try to understand how larger city level, and even, at least in theory, social policies and and sort of state-level effects shape neighborhoods. So I'm not arguing that neighborhood is the most important phenomenon in city life. What I'm saying is that it's a an important construct that mediates and helps us understand both individuals but also how neighborhoods and, and cities really are, are socially organized. So in a, in a sense it's moving across all these different levels of analysis, which makes it hard <laughs> in terms of the the kinds of analytic questions that one has to address, but I think it it, it addresses the reality of the phenomenon. Hmm. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the specific neighborhoods, or I guess the specific city that you've um, drawn all this work from, and that's Chicago. And I know one of the questions that you have to address head on in the book is why Chicago. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Like, why was Chicago sort of the stage for your work here? Yeah, the book is, as the title indicates, both about Chicago mm-hmm. and its neighborhood effects. So the book has its history in a project um, called The Project in Human Development in Chicago Neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. started in the mid-1990s. Before we even started the project, we searched and thought hard about the question of where should we study or, or what city. And by the way, this was a, a large-scale project that was funded by both the federal government and, and the MacArthur Foundation, involved right. multiple collaborators. Mm-hmm. What we wanted, um, actually the, the original design was for, for there to be multiple cities, but it turned out to be so complex that <laughs> no one could afford to put it that right. way. We had to select the city, so we actually went around the country. We had site visits to oh. multiple Yeah, we went to uh, Los Angeles and New Orleans, and we analyzed data in Baltimore and New York and, and so on. No? Pardon? <laughs> Not Minneapolis? Well, Minneapolis. Yeah, I thought about Minneapolis. Really? We didn't actually oh. get there, though. Darn it. <laughs> so one of the 
we were trying to do several things, but we wanted a city that we thought was broadly reflective of American society, mm-hmm. large enough to give us sort of the power to look at multiple neighborhoods, not mm-hmm. just a few. We also wanted to study the uh, three largest race ethnic groups in American mm-hmm. society, namely whites or European Americans, African Americans, and, and Latinos or, mm-hmm. or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. So there's not that many cities, actually, where you have a large uh, population within all three hmm. groups and where you have variability in neighborhoods and socioeconomic status. Hmm. In other words, we didn't want to study just the ghetto, um, in quotes, <laughs> as many studies do. We didn't just want to study um, whites. We just didn't want to study, for example, um, middle class, or working class whites. We really wanted that range. We wanted to see what's it like for whites to grow up in poor neighborhoods. What do upper income, middle class, black communities look like? What do heterogeneous communities look like? So that's why we went around the country and looked at census data and any number of things. We also were very concerned that we wanted there to be uh, statistics and a history of research that would allow us to situate the study. And Chicago, as it turns out, has, has a long history of research, as many people probably know. Right. The authorities were very um, open to sharing data. And then the last sort of maybe intangible quality, but it, it links to the, the, the title of the book, and that is not just in social science, but in, in terms of art and, and literary uh, world, that there's a sense that um, Chicago is the quintessential American city, um, or as Norman Mailer put it in Miami in the siege of Chicago. Chicago is a great American city, and um, many other observers have said the same thing as well. And so I think that kind of reflects this notion that it is not exactly the same as all cities, but it captures the dynamics and the essence of of the American character, and therefore is and and continues to be um, a wonderful site for social Mm -hmm. research. So that's why we chose it. So it wasn't just convenience, you're saying. You did check out other cities and... Oh, yeah. In fact, um, we spent a lot of time, lots of hotels uh, <laughs> and other places. And, and it really just came down to a confluence uh, of those characteristics that led to Chicago as the site. Hmm. Cool. Um, well, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the Chicago um, the project on human development. And we don't have to get into all the nitty-gritty. I mean, I admit when I started on the chapter, I think maybe it's chapter four, where you start talking about the project, I sort of had expected my eyes to glaze over a little, you know, I've read, I've read your articles and things like that. So I know, um, you know, I know some of the details about that project. But then there was some really interesting stuff in that chapter about, you know, what the research process was actually like, and some of the different challenges and opportunities that you all met uh, along the way. I just thought maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what it was like to kind of put together this really massive project over a long period of time. And what you experienced there. Sure. I thought it was really important to tell the story of the project. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it seems that oftentimes when people look at data or use data, they they don't have a good sense of what produced the data. And right. Th- there's a social science, if you will, in the making of the project. Mm-hmm. It's really important, I think, um, to, to understand that. And in a way, um, data are... Theory And so I, I go through and describe the history of the project going back into the 1980s mm-hmm. and the aspects of data collection. Just to give you just a real quick um, summary for the listener, yeah. first of all, it's a study 
of children growing up in Chicago in the mid-90s. And what we did was to select multiple cohorts of children that were studied at the same period of time. We started at birth, hmm. and the idea was to enroll pregnant women. Now, that seems um, hard to do, and it is. Yeah. And it was very, very expensive and, and wow. tough to, to pull off, but we also wanted to study a broader age range, so we selected three-year-olds, six-year-olds, hmm. nine-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds, and 18-year-olds. So we had multiple cohorts. They were selected in roughly 1994 to 1996. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they were selected within a range of Chicago neighborhoods. It wasn't just a random sample. It was a strat what's known as a stratified sample where we selected um, 80 different neighborhood mm -hmm. um, clusters that varied by race, ethnicity, and social class, and then within those selected age-eligible children randomly. Mm -hmm. It is a representative sample, but it captures the diversity of neighborhood conditions. Yeah. Then we decided, um, based on the notion that just to understand context, you really need to study that context independently. Mm -hmm. That led to really three independent kinds of data collection. One, we carried out a community survey mm -hmm. in, in, across the entire city of Chicago. About 8,000 people mm -hmm. asked them multiple questions about their surroundings, about a um, number of attitudes, perceptions, interactions, and so forth. Secondly, uh, we felt that it's not just important to ask people what they think, but rather to observe in the traditional scientific uh, tradition. So we conducted what we called systematic social observation. What that means, at least in our case, was that we drove very slowly down the streets of right. Chicago in a sport utility vehicle with two cameras mounted in the back, one point on each side of the street, and then two observers who were writing uh, on observer logs, and also there was an audio recording things. We coded from videotapes, there's about 22,000 street segments, aspects of the physical and social structure of the environment. And then thirdly, we talked with the leaders of institutional uh, representatives, really, so law, business, mm -hmm. education, religion, community organizations. We wanted to capture, in other words, the key leaders, and they uh, could tell us something about the organizational structure. So it's really, what do the residents think? What can we observe? And what do the organizations or leaders um, say or think? And then we mapped all that onto the study of kids. And then all three of these things, believe it or not, were um, carried out over time. That is, we followed the kids and their families. We interviewed the caretakers and the children once they were um, a certain age that they could um, participate in an interview, mm -hmm. were followed for three different waves, followed wherever they moved in the United States, actually the world. There's you know, interviews in Mexico and wow. in Europe and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we conducted a, a second wave of systematic social observation, another round of the key informant interviews. This whole process, particularly at the neighborhood level, ties into the idea or the concept of what we've called eco-metrics. Mm -hmm. What that means, simply, is that it's important, we argue, to develop a metric for the study of ecology, hence the notion mm -hmm. of eco-metrics. And eco-metrics is a, is a conceptual tool, but it's also, and I'm not going to get into it now, of course, but it has ethical, uh, properties that allow us to assess the, the quality of these measures. So the book then tries to put this all together to study 
uh, neighborhood effects across a, a wide uh, variety of, of social phenomena. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that was a very nice, um, relatively succinct summary because I, and I, is interview, coming into this interview, I thought, oh, how are we going to, you know, because the study is so involved, I thought, how will we um, cover all this? But that, that should really help anyone who's not familiar with the project to know just all what, what went into it and how many different angles you all were coming at looking at this, this one city and, and its, and its neighborhoods. Um, I was also very interested in that chapter, how you just talked about just the research process itself and something you said a little bit ago about how I think so many people who read social science literature may not realize quite how much um, goes into it. Even things like, you know, your story about writing your survey questions during the day and then discussing them over single malt scotch at the pub at night or just some of the different misadventures your RAs had in, in urban um, Chicago. And, and yeah, so, I mean, I just really wanted to compliment that part of the book because as a growing social scientist myself, I found that to be just really, really interesting and, and, and nice, I guess, that you brought that part of, of social science research out for, for people to read. Well, in one sense, I, I suppose it's a little bit of, you know, airing dirty laundry because I got all the, you know, some of the nitty gritty in there. But again, if you're going to go out into the streets or you're going to study um, cities, you have to confront um, all kinds of things, like what happens if, you know, there's violence, as I noted in the book. Right viewers that you know witnessed a dead body or well, what happens if you can't get into a high-rise in this case the near north side of chicago which is the the rich area that was the hardest to, to penetrate and mm. we had to resort to um almost bribery to <laughs> to get in these places and so it requires a, an understanding of the social organization of the city to even carry out research on on the social organization of the city that's why right. uh, i think not only is it interesting but it links in to the the very understanding of neighborhood effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, let's come back to to neighborhood effects then, and maybe I mean, as I've noted, you you cover so much ground in the book, but maybe you could pick out you know what are a few things that you think people really need to know about neighborhoods and and how they affect our lives. Sure. Well. It's hard to summarize. Mm-hmm. As you know, there's a lot of chapters. Um, let me just note a few um, sort of find findings, maybe some counterintuitive ones. Yeah. Um, one, I show that the legacies of inequality at the neighborhood level are, are quite um, distinct and go back a long ways, actually. And mm-hmm. I think people might be surprised to note that things like the persistence of poverty um, unfolds over a, a 30, 40 year period. It turns out, for example, that the community in the 1960s that had the highest poverty rate is still the highest poverty rate in, mm. in 2000 and beyond. I look at all neighborhoods in the United States, by the way, on some of these key dimensions such as race and class, and, and similar things happen. So mm-hmm. while there is change, the change is, is systematically structured. Mm. I look at how neighborhood inequality links to things like crime, health, I examine the social properties of a neighborhood. One way to think about it is that I'm really arguing that there's a, a social climate or a kind of social personality to a neighborhood. So much of social science research is reduced to characteristics of the population or the people. That is to say, mm-hmm. it's, well, they're poor or they're a minority status or some sort of compositional feature. While that's important, and the inequality chapter covers that, mm-hmm. I delve into 
characteristics such as the collective efficacy of the neighborhood, which really has to do with shared expectations for um, the neighborhood and, and trust among neighbors, that's shown to be linked to crime rates. The higher the collective efficacy, the, the lower the homicide. Mm -hmm. Examine the disorder in a neighborhood, mm -hmm. which probably worth noting because it's so much a part of urban uh, discourse these days, particularly in, in policing. Mm -hmm. Listeners are probably familiar with the, the famous theory of broken windows. Right. The idea that one broken window leads to another mm -hmm. signal to offenders and therefore is directly um, sort of linked to a downward spiral and, and mm -hmm. more. I think that there's a lot to that theory. and We tried very hard to address it and measure it. We asked people's perceptions of disorder, mm -hmm. videotaped the streets. We counted up the amount of garbage and, and literally broken windows and, and graffiti and so forth in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Independently, we measured the poverty and the crime. And there, there's several interesting things. One I, I would describe just briefly because I think it's interesting, and that is um, regardless of whether people live in the same environment, there's actually a great deal of divergence in how people perceive disorder. Mm. And there's also differences by social location in society, that is social class, race, ethnicity. Whites tend to see or perceive more disorder than whites, blacks. I mean, whites perceive more disorder than, than blacks, Latinos, and Asians. Uh -huh. Perhaps most interesting, there's a real neighborhood effect here in that the racial composition and the immigrant composition of a neighborhood is directly linked to perceptions independent of the observed disorder. Hmm. So where there's a higher concentration of minorities and a higher concentration of immigrants, people perceive more disorder, even hmm. if there's the same observed level of disorder. Hmm. This leads to is a kind of shared uh, notion of disorder or collective perceptions of disorder. I think this is uh, sort of unrecognized how powerful these are, links right. to our ideas of, of reputations of neighborhoods, and I show that the shared perceptions of disorder actually link to later poverty rates, hmm. and it's a real marker, I think, of a neighborhood. So in a way, disorder theory um, was onto something, but I think missed some of the mechanisms by which it actually works, and the fact is that one broken window does not necessarily lead to another broken window. It really depends on the context. Huh. That's the inside of the book, and I follow through the implications of that for understanding crime, for understanding urban change, and, and I think that um, what we see, or cues of disorder, are really important in American society, and that's why policing and cities, and it's so much part of the public debate, but I think the common understanding of it is, is perhaps a bit, a bit off. Yeah. I also look at. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I also look at aspects of altruism, hmm. extent to which people help random strangers. That varies a lot by community. Um, and I also look um, at again what I call the, the sort of beyond the the neighborhood, the links among the various neighborhoods in the city, or what I call the higher order structure of the city. So, for example, the extent to which organizations in one particular community are linked to resources and organizations in another community, it's a different kind of a neighborhood effect, but it's important because it's not just about the internal characteristics. It's about how the neighborhood itself is 
sort of like in itself, it's part of a network. You can almost think of neighborhoods as nodes in this larger network of the city. Mm-hmm. That's the latter part of the book that, that tries to pose questions in a way that that is a bit different from just thinking about the internal characters, characteristics of a neighborhood and how that affects an individual or others in that neighborhood. Hmm. So you mentioned the um, social altruism is something that you looked at, and that, that involved the lost letter experiment. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that, that was fascinating. Sure. Well, I described how you know we asked people what they thought, we observed, we measure things like poverty and crime rates, but those are all somewhat indirect indicators of a really important um, piece of the social climate, and that has to do with other regarding behavior. Mm-hmm. That concept is important in the literature. Altruism has been studied in multiple disciplines. It mm-hmm. really hasn't been studied much by sociologists or criminologists, and mm-hmm. we attempted to get at that in a, in a couple different ways, but the main one is a variation on Stanley Milgram's um, lost letter experiment. The original one addressed letters to, I think it was the Communist Party and the Nazi Party, (laughs) to see which one got um, higher returns relative to more benign um, organizations. And you you can kind of guess that Nazi and Communist Party had lower return rates. (laughs) Right. But that had nothing to do with context. So Hmm. make a long story short, we addressed uh, letters to um, well, fictitious names, but a real address, and, and hmm. coded where they were dropped and what time of day, and coded all the characteristics of the surrounding, including whether it was windy, raining, wow. what the temperature was, um, and so on. Was it, you know, anything about the, the situation was taken into account. And what we found was really profound variations in the rate at which the letters were returned anywhere from zero percent to over 75 percent that's huge and once you account for the characteristics of of the situation and when one thinks about the idea that you know anyone can return a lost letter and we adjusted for things that would even you know take care of proximity to mailboxes and so forth Mm -hmm. that that provides an interesting indicator of other regarding behavior. So I look at that as sort of social altruistic behavior. I compare it to collective efficacy. I compare it to other social characteristics like the moral cynicism mm-hmm. of the community. And they all go together in interesting ways. Where there's higher social altruism, there's less cynicism, um, higher collective efficacy. And these, these form these, this sort of social climate of the community. Mm-hmm. And it's important for understanding people's perceptions it's important for understanding the nature of how these communities um, evolve over time. Because if you think about it, people, at least I think, care not just what the income level of their communities Mm -hmm. are, but they don't want to live in a place where they mistrust Mm -hmm. their neighbors or where no one will help them if they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Those are hard things to get at, but there are are ways that we can approach them and try to address that systematically. Yeah, really interesting. Well, another thing that you do a lot in the book is uh, spatial sort of analyses. I mean, there are a lot of maps, um, but then it's also something that you took on in a very um, 
you know, systematic and statistical way, too, to analyze, you know, how do neighboring neighborhoods matter for neighborhood indicators and things like that. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, why you've kind of taken on that spatial type of analysis and what you think it offers for the study of these kinds of phenomena. Goes back to the definition of neighborhood effect. I noted that much of the research is focused in on a somewhat narrow definition of, of neighborhood, which is just the internal characteristics of a particular place on individuals within that place. But the idea of spatial analysis and thinking at a broader level is that the neighbors of a neighborhood matter. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is that you can have two neighborhoods that are equivalent, let's say, on racial composition, on economic status, on social altruism. But if one is situated, let's say, next to a neighborhood um, that's very different than the otherwise similar neighborhood, that's going to have an effect. So some real examples would be, and this is in, in part how the racial and spatial organ of organization of the city matters in ways that we don't typically think about, that black middle-class neighborhoods in Chicago, but also in other cities, differ from white middle-class neighborhoods in their proximity to risk. Hmm. So I show that, for example, you can have um, a black middle-class neighborhood, similar income, similar occupational status, um, and, and let's just, for the sake of the thought experiment thinking this through, Let's assume things are, are similar to a white middle-class neighborhood. But yet, on average, the black middle-class neighborhoods are much, much um, closer to high poverty, high crime neighborhoods. Right. That makes a difference because it's not the case that neighborhood borders are you know, characterized by tall walls. There mm-hmm. are permeability. There's what's known as diffusion and exposure offenders that live in one neighborhood cross boundaries all the time. So mm-hmm. we have to then take into account both the internal characteristics, yes, they matter, but so too do these external characteristics. And it turns out that the ecological position of a neighborhood, and in some sense people intuit this, right? So, uh-huh. well, okay, I'm going to live here, but um, where's it located relative to everything else? That has to do with not just risk, but also things like commuting or commuting or distance to mm-hmm. shopping or organizations. So it's not enough, in other words, to take into account one neighborhood. And so I take into account all the neighborhoods and conduct spatial analysis, w- which look at the ripple effects. That's really the way I think about it. So there's mm-hmm. sort of ripple effects. And there's also spatial regimes of the city. What I mean by that is areas or sort of chunks mm-hmm. of the city where certain um, phenomenon are are playing out in a in a way that doesn't exist in other cities and uh, other areas of the city. One example of that is immigration hmm. and violence. Another counterintuitive finding in the book is that immigration is linked to lower rates of violence, despite um, many um, thoughts to the contrary in, right. in the wider discourse. And first-generation immigrants are also less likely to commit violence Mm -hmm. than third-generation immigrants. But concentrated immigrant areas, controlling for income and and other characteristics, seem to have a protective effect. But that tends to be much stronger in in certain areas of the city. So it's not, again, something that is 
broadly applicable no matter what the context. Hmm. Another example that the, the context in terms of space um, matters. So that that's um, really a, a spatial mechanism at, at work. Hmm. Yeah. I wanted to go back to, um, you mentioned that you also looked at organizations and, and um, how they factored into these uh, different uh, effects. And so what did you guys find out in terms of the presence of organizations or the concentration of organizations? And were there organizations that seemed to make more or less difference for neighborhoods? Yeah, so there was a, a chapter and, and actually a theoretical section of the book that zeroes in on organizations, looks at community organizations, both community-based organizations and, and general nonprofit mm-hmm. organizations. We asked residents about their engagement in organizations, the civic participation, but we also looked at the density of nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm. turns out that there's a great deal of variability across neighborhoods, even at different income levels, in mm-hmm. the rate or the density of the nonprofit organizations. What we found, in short, was that it's not any one specific kind of organization, but rather the total infrastructure that seems to matter. I, I showed, for example, and this is also based on um, work in, in collaboration with some social movement researchers, that the organizational density predicts collective civic action. Mm. And that's, I think, something that is important to understand because collective civic behavior, things like um, not just more mundane things like, uh, let's say, a blood drive, but things like getting resources to build a a new wing of the local library. Uh Um, These are sort of everyday activities and larger collective action like protests and and civic uh, claims these are rooted in the organizational organizational character of the neighborhood. It's what I call the organizational imperative. Hmm. We're an increasingly organizational society, mm-hmm. but like many of the other phenomena I've talked about, it's not flat. Mm-hmm. There's a distinct variability across neighborhoods. And so we shouldn't discount organizations as ineffective even in a global world. Nonprofits can make a significant difference particularly in how vulnerable neighborhoods face uh, challenges. For example, in the recent recession, we've seen neighborhoods that mm. get hard hit with foreclosures, right. housing, things like that. Nonprofits, it turns out, are, are quite involved in, in these sorts of um, areas, and, and it's often invisible. Mm-hmm. I try to un- uncover and peel back what's going on and argue that community-based organizations and organizations in general are an important ingredient in building up the collective efficacy of communities and the, the resilience of communities in, in facing challenges. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, moving to like looking uh, to sort of what comes next, you, t- you talk about some ideas or some things to guide policy implications as well as you know future research and you talk about in terms of policy implications the idea of structural interventions and I wondered if you could just explain for our listeners you know what would be a structural uh, intervention and what might that look like typically the debate over policy and this is somewhat oversimplified but I think it's it's generally accurate we have one set of um, ideas about how to change individual behavior mm-hmm. and out 
through the use of vouchers. Mm-hmm. So um, this is common, for example, in the school or education literature where you give individuals vouchers so that they can move to a better school. Right. But it's also um, a debate in the neighborhood literature because one way to deal with, let's say, the concentration of poverty is through giving people vouchers or a, a chance to move out right. of a disadvantaged neighborhood, and that's the the well-known moving to opportunity experiment, which, right. in fact, gave people vouchers mm-hmm. randomly. That's important, and I think that, that needs to be on the table. Um, but there's also a way of thinking about intervening not at the level of the individual, because in a way, if you go the voucher route, you're in a sense giving up on the neighborhood. You're giving up on the school. You're saying, well, escape. Right. Be, escape the disadvantage. Right. But, um, you know, at, at some level, you can't run forever. Mm. And therefore, I argue for thinking about place. Now, when it comes to thinking about intervening at the level of a community or place or even at the city, mm. there's different ways of thinking about that, too. One is to, in essence, not escape the place, but get rid of the place. And what I mean by that is that in many cities, what the approach has been is to say, well, housing projects, for example, are a disaster. Um, let's right. tear them down. Right. In Chicago, we've seen the teardown of huge um, housing projects. For example, the Robert Taylor Homes, which housed over 1,000 yeah. families, uh, Cabrini Green and the near north side. Mm-hmm. Other cities have seen similar um, kinds of interventions. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad or good. I'm just trying to get the logic of that intervention on the table, which is to, in essence, get rid of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And and literally, um, and I have a photograph of this in Chapter Mm 1, Robert Taylor Homes, which was a neighborhood of, again, over 30,000 people, is a field. It is just a field Mm -hmm. today. There's nothing there. So where did those people go? Mm -hmm. Well, that's that they went somewhere, and the distribution and the migration of individuals to new neighborhoods creates, in those neighborhoods, a new set of of processes. Mm -hmm. So I argue that you actually never can just intervene in any one neighborhood. One really has to understand the holistic uh, pattern, and what I do is to show the movement of um, Chicago Housing Authority residents and the moving to opportunity uh, families. It tends to be very structured. So the disadvantaged tend to move to um, other relatively disadvantaged communities. Oftentimes, they're on the decline, which then perhaps can set in in motion a, a reinforcing mechanism. So I argue for maybe what you might think of as a third way, which is to think about place-based interventions that, in essence, seek to stabilize and renew hmm. existing communities rather than blow up the housing projects and move everybody out or just give some people vouchers move out, try to retain the housing structure to uh, renew that neighborhood. Now, that's not necessarily going to work in all cases, and maybe you know one needs to go the voucher route or the teardown route, depending on the context. But there's a logic to neighborhood-level intervention. One example of this holistic intervention is the Harlem Children's Zone okay. in New York, mm-hmm. which is a famous example of concentrating a lot of resources on sort of in a, in a holistic way. It's not any one particular um, intervention, but a lot of different interventions focused in on one place. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not arguing necessarily for a Harlem Children's Zone everywhere, but that is the logic. And okay. we need to think creatively about ways um, to go forward with those kinds of interventions. And, and that's part of my current thinking. Hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up the Harlem Children's Zone because there's a an effort uh, here in Minneapolis, actually, in the neighborhood that I live in on the north side, um, to do that. It's called the North Side Achievement Zone, and it just got a huge amount of federal funding. Anyway, to, in a sense, I think, try to replicate what they've done with the Harlem Children's Zone. So I'm sort of living that and seeing how that's um, developing here in, uh, in my own city. Um, so I'll keep yeah, that in mind. I think it's mind. important because you can't just keep moving people forever. And to right. the extent there are spillover effects, then in, in a way um, the policies of, of just moving can be counterproductive. Right, exactly. Well, and then what about in terms of research? What are you um, moving on to next? I'm sure it was a relief to get this book done and, and out there, but you know, what's your current research agenda like? Yeah, I can't get away from Chicago. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> no. But I, I've gone back, um, and I've gone forward um, simultaneously. And what I mean by that is the new project is a follow-up of the children of the PhDCN hmm today. Hmm. So the birth cohort from 1994-95, those kids are now turning about 16 years old and the older cohorts are in their late 20s and early 30s. Hmm. We've got new funding to go back and locate those individuals and where they live and we are collecting um, information on their lives and what we're particularly interested in is the extent to which their trajectories or their their life course has been mm-hmm. shaped over time, but also how the Great Recession has has influenced that. Yeah, that keeps me in Chicago. But um, you asked early on about well, why Chicago? And right. it's true that it's been studied a lot, and many people have said to me, "Well, what about southwestern cities, or uh-huh. what about um, places like Los Angeles, which have um, you know a very different urban form?" It's true. Um, mm-hmm. So taken on that challenge. So part of this project is a follow-up of families that took part of a study in Los Angeles mm-hmm. known as the Los Angeles Family and Neighborhood Study. Mm-hmm. So in collaboration with Rob Merritt at UCLA, we are conducting a comparative study of Los Angeles and Chicago. It wow. has the same research design, same instrument, and it's currently um, in the field and therefore we'll be able to take on some of the questions of, well, is the difference between, let's say, Chicago and L.A. a difference, a surface difference, or is it a real fundamental difference in mechanism? So I'm excited about that. That sounds great. I'll look forward to reading the articles and books that come out of that project, and hopefully our listeners will too. And for anyone who wants to know more about what we've been talking about today, you can check out Dr. Sampson's book, Great American City, Chicago, and the Enduring Neighborhood Effect. Dr. Sampson, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right, that's our show. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon.